Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I am here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hello. Hello to you both. Uh, We are in October now. Uh, We are still in the midst of the New York Film Festival, and it is festival season kind of everywhere. Uh, For, you know, whatever reason, and we can talk about the reasons why, October is just a huge month for regional film festivals um, with a ton of movies that we're going to be talking about for months and months ahead that are playing all over the place. Um, So we'll get into kind of the lineup of what you can see and where and maybe what it means that all these films are playing everywhere. We're going to talk about some Oscar news. We're going to talk about some musicals news. We're going to talk about some new releases and we're kind of going all over the place um and i wanted to start by maybe combining a new release and also a story that our friend uh former guest of the show future guest of the show joe reed wrote about potential first-time nominees this year like people who would either get their first oscars this year or get their first nominations this year and one of the ones who i've got in mind kind of the highest is ann dowd who has this um big role in mass a movie that is out this week it played at sundance earlier this year richard and rebecca have you guys both seen mass or am i the only one I yeah, have. I saw it. Okay. It's a huge bummer. It is an extremely sad movie. <laughs> um, basically about these uh, two sets of parents uh, who meet uh, some amount of years after a school shooting. It's the uh, the family of the shooter and then one of the, the kids who died. Um, and it's it's fairly theatrical feeling. You know, it's a lot of people like giving monologues and sitting in a room together. Um, but Anne Dowd, I think, is kind of, it's in a cast that includes Jason, let's see, Jason Isaacs, Martha Plimpton, and um, Reed Burney. But I think she's kind of the clear standout in terms of the awards campaign, partly because of the the success she's had on The Handmaid's Tale, which is also something of a bummer of a, of a show uh, that she's won several Emmys for. I, th- I think she is something of a darker horse contender just because of the size of mass. But do you guys feel that the momentum that Anne Dowd has built up from the Emmys over the years is maybe going to benefit her here? Yeah, I think that she has tons of industry goodwill. She gave Hulu the best branding thing they could ever ask for when she said the word Hulu at the Emmys. Um, and I Is think that, why more, isn't that the sound you hear when you, it's like the Netflix badum, it's just Anne Dowd saying Hulu when you open the app. It really should be. Um, but I think also, you know, Mass is getting a pretty good push. Dad had a New York Times article. I'm going to a screening slash little like cocktail thing tonight for the film at the Metrograph here in New York. I Yeah, I, I mean, it just it just feels like Even when we watched it at Sundance, I was like, well, you know, like there's a certain sort of like she's due kind of quality hanging around her. Um, And I I don't know. I I feel like so much is kind of snapping into place. Also, the fact that like there aren't a ton of other supporting actress contenders who I think are posing really strong competition to her at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Our, Our colleague David Canfield did a great piece with her recently you know, about this role. And, and I think she's just so wonderful and likable and, and like Richard's saying, uh, uh, respected in the acting community. And it feels like this role, because it, there's no like crazy costumes or dystopian, you know, it's like really, you get to really just watch her act and, and uh, perform. And I think um, it feels like it could be 
um, I, I agree with Katie. It's still a dark horse, but um, I think it could be a, a great moment for her. So I'm excited. I, 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 I really enjoyed the movie as hard of a watch as it was. I did. Th- I, I did wonder if it was a play originally because it is I know. You know, just the four of them around a table for the most of the movie. So it could be a play. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, you know, for those of us who remember the movie Compliance that was at this point about a decade ago, like this is kind of an interesting bookend to what was a pretty unlikely like awards push for that movie. Like that movie is maybe even harder to watch than Mass, which uh, is, feels like hard to say. But that really kicked off this this moment in her career. Like I would imagine it led really directly to The Handmaid's Tale, which has kind of burnished her star there. So the fact that like she's kind of coming back around with another small film, another really challenging film, but could actually um, maybe get into the lineup this time. It, it's kind of nice to see that progress for her. And I kind of think she almost got in for compliance. I think she was yeah. pretty close. It felt like it could happen for a really long time. And now, of course, I need to look up like what critics awards or what else she did win for that year, because it did feel like she was around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it was like the kind of thing. And I, I don't mean this in any sort of, you know, I'm not trying to like shade anyone in our industry, but like it was one of those things with compliance where like there was a lot of scrambling to be like, oh, I've always known Anne Dowd's great. You know, like mm, it was that, it was mm-hmm. the, it was the kind of like cool performance to like be rooting one of the cool performances to be rooting for that year. And I think that that quality of like, you know, it helps that she was on The Leftovers, which was a cult hit show about partly a cult that she was in. She just like has that kind of quality about her where it's like, you know, those who know, know. And I think that there are moments when that when that kind of actor can pop out. And so it's exciting for the sort of longtime diehards. And it's exciting for the people who weren't as familiar with the person's work to feel like they're making a discovery, you know? And even though yeah. Dowd has been working for years and years and years, I think she's benefiting currently kind of in a weird way from her somewhat recent, like not obscurity, but just sort of like she was not a name until, you know, compliance and uh, really. And um, I think that's actually kind of working in her favor now. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I rewatched uh, Philadelphia not that long ago. And Richard, I think you did it on Blank Checks. You rewatched it too. And she's in Philadelphia. She's in Tom Hanks's family. And you're like, whoa, hang on. Yeah. Ann Dowd's mm-hmm. been here forever. Um, I did just look up for compliance. Uh, she got nominated in a lot of different critics groups, including the Critics' Choice Awards. And then she won the National Board of Review for Best Supporting Actress. So that is actually a big indicator that she was, she was in the hunt there. Um, and we may see that repeat itself soon. I feel like National Board of Review does a really good job. Like their uh, wins are... I don't know, always on point for what I'm feeling personally. They can be weird, though. Like, you remember how much they love Clint Eastwood? Like, if Cry Macho gets in their oh, top 10, yes. I, I will not be surprised. But That's you're right. True. They they can often go out on a limb in a way that, that helps a ton for these campaigns that need that boost. You know, and the other thing about looking at this Wikipedia list of all of her various awards, nominations, and wins is beyond one thing from 1998, everything is from 2012 on, from compliance mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot. You know, she was in her 50s when that happened. And it's just, I don't know, it's cool that that can happen in an actor's career. Like, you know, like, just wait. Like, something could come and you, yeah. it'll change everything like it did for Richard Jenkins or you yeah. know, whoever else. And again, I think that adds to this narrative where in some ways the Academy could be, like, offering an encouragement to lots of other actors that, like... <laughs> keep plugging away, pay your union dues. Like <laughs> this could happen to you too, you know? Yeah. 
Um, well, her one of her competition, like look at the supporting actress category. You've got Marley Matlin, who is also in a Sundance movie, which is interesting. Um, for Coda, who she's obviously an Oscar winner already. But in terms of someone who could get their first nomination, uh, Kirsten Dunst is someone who I've been excited about. And we've talked about the power of a dog a lot. And I promise this isn't just about her architectural digest video tour that she published today of her house, <laughs> which is amazing. And she's just such an interesting, a really different story than Ann Dow, but kind of a similar thing of like she's been, been working forever and has had kind of so many uh, culturally significant roles and hasn't gotten there yet. And I'm just I'm feeling really bullish on her finally getting that nomination this year. Yeah, I hope I hope she does. I mean, her work in Power of the Dog is is pretty great, but it, it's also just like she has delivered so many great performances over the years and just sort of being unable to kind of get that awards attention. I think it's definitely time for her, you know, I mean, Melancholia, I feel like is the one we all probably thought was going to get her there. Speaking her of movies trophy. that are hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. This is the downer <laughs> episode. Of <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it would be great to see her, you know, get that attention this year. Yeah, I think it was 1929, Mary Pickford, she was the first, she did the AD tour, home tour, and yeah. then won mm -hmm. the Oscar. Yeah. So that's yeah. obviously a long-standing <laughs> tradition. Mm -hmm. um, the house is incredible. She also says she hates open concept, which I'm like, okay, that's someone said it. I don't mind open concept, <laughs> but I just thought it was a very brave stance to take. Um, but yeah, she's really good in the movie. She's been around. I was at something last night uh, for a party for Come On, Come On at New York Film Festival, and she was there sort of just being admired either from afar or up close, you know, like people talking to her and well-wishers. And, and I, I think that, like, she seems to have arrived at a place, you know, at least judging from interviews, like Kyle Buchanan wrote that piece for The New York Times about her, of, like, kind of a centeredness. You know, she's had a couple kids. She's married. She's figuring out career stuff um, that... Again, in terms of the Academy telling stories, they would tell a story with Ann Dowd and they could tell a story with Kirsten Dunst in terms of, you know, yes, the, that town is littered with the, you know, the ruins of many child stars. But here is one who figured it out, you know, after yeah. some dark years and and is now doing like some might argue career best work. So I, I think that rewarding someone for the long slog, you know, I, I think is something that that this group likes to do. Yeah. And I think that's a similar narrative to uh, what we could see for Kristen Stewart. I'm obsessed with this Kirsten and Kristen uh, surge <laughs> this year. Um, but, Get Dave uh, Letterman back. Kirsten, <laughs> Kirsten, 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 yeah. They're so ready for it. Um, but yeah, she's a former child actor. She's someone who's like kind of gone through the trenches. I think she, I, Kristen Stewart was more famous at the peak of her fame than Kirsten Dunst was at the peak of her fame, right? Like they both did the franchise thing, but Kristen Stewart kind of went through the ringer with it. You guys would agree with that? Yeah, I think there's yeah. nothing that beats the Twilight phenomenon, right? Yeah. For her. I, I think the big thing is that sp the Spider-Man movies were by no means pre-internet, but they weren't as internet as Twilight. You know, yes. Twilight had that incredibly intense fan base. Not that Spider-Man didn't have a fan base, but they weren't quite as collectivized and rabid, let's say, as the Twilight fandom was. And so it made Kristen Stewart a very different kind of star than did Kirsten Dunst's Spider-Man stuff. Um, yeah. And also Dunst was not the lead. Yeah. Yeah. People didn't care about the romance in Spider-Man the way that they cared about the romance in Twilight. Um, it's also crazy to think that those movies, like the first Spider-Man's 2002, the first Twilight's 2008. Like that's a six year difference and an enormous difference in terms of how fan bases work. Well, pre-social media and post-social media, you know, like. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I would love, God, like, get the two of them together to talk about, like, what they, how they have grown up and managed to create lives for themselves in the wakes of child stardom like that. That would be the dream conversation because I feel like their stories reflect so interestingly on each other. And, like, their performances, you know, Spencer and Power of the Dog are pretty different movies. But I think that um, as Oscar narratives go, those are, that's a really interesting pair of people to consider. But Kristen Stewart's getting nominated, right? We can all just agree that this is happening. I think. Yes. Unless something crazy happens in the next few months, I can't see that not happening. Well, because I don't know we, you, you and I, Rebecca, were talking about this at Telluride. Like when we went to that first screening of Spencer at Telluride, so sort of post its very lauded Venice premiere, the room felt a little bit not not chilly exactly, but like less than enthused. But that could have just been that audience. Like I don't know, but you know, the Telluride audience is there are a lot of Academy members in that crowd and right. a lot of people who sort of have sway in in Hollywood. So I, there is the risk maybe that the movie is too alienating and it's too much of an art piece. And Stewart's performance is very much a her performance. I mean, it's not it's not as transformative maybe as people, I don't know, as sort of has been whispered about. I don't think she's great in it, but it's still watching Kristen Stewart in a movie. There is a chance that all of that could combine to like alienate enough Academy voters that it won't happen. But I think that especially... I keep teasing this without explaining myself and I'm not going to again, but like, especially with the, how the film ends, I think it will resonate enough with enough voters that she will get in. I don't know about a win, but we'll see. Yeah. I think the conversations I had, at least after Telluride, some people don't like the movie, but all of them seem to say, oh, but Kristen was amazing Mm. in it. So even if the movie doesn't, you know, make its way to best picture, I do think she has a, a strong chance to, at least, as you said, get the nomination. Well, this is an uh, interesting transition into the fall festivals that I wanted to talk about. And we can hit on some of the other potential nominees while we talk about this. But uh, Spencer is one of a good number of movies that were at Telluride or at Toronto or, you know, Venice or various other festivals that are kind of just making the circuit around the country over the next month. And, and to some extent, it's kind of you can watch these films travel down the East Coast, like the Hamptons Film Festival. It's happening this weekend. Then the Middleburg, uh, Virginia Film Festival is the weekend after that. And then uh, right here in um, the Chapel Hill, Durham, Raleigh Triangle area where I live is Film Fest 919, which I'm very excited about to see some of these. Uh, and then the Savannah Film Festival at the end of October. So um, they just kind of hit all the stops on their way down the coast. Um, you've also got Mill Valley Film Festival also starting this weekend. Um, I sent you guys, I compiled a like slightly insane looking list of just how many of these movies are playing all over the place on these. And I think the thing that strikes me is some of them ones that you might think be like, might be more alienating, like Spencer or Lost Daughter, um, or even, uh, maybe I'm not Bergman Island, but there's there's movies that you're like, how, how is this going to play in Georgia? How will this play in like a rural Virginia film festival? And they're going there, which I think is A, an interesting sign of commitment on the part of these distributors that they just want these films to, to build buzz with as many audiences as possible. And then also how much they think that the power of word of mouth could really build them up from there. What, what did you guys take away from this this, this crazy list I sent you? Well, I, I think I, I think the thing to sort of consider about these particular film festivals, Middleburg, Hamptons, Mill Valley, Savannah, is that, yes, some of those are located in parts of the country that we don't tend to think of as similar to New York audiences or Los Angeles audiences. But... Middleburg as at a resort <laughs> in a, a very expensive resort in a part like kind of horse country in Virginia that is a vacation place for people in DC uh, Mill Valley wealthy you know uh, Northern California Savannah very wealthy town with it with, with and the festival is directly connected with the art school there 
I, I think they're it's a very um, <laughs> these are these are wealthy audiences that uh, <laughs> of, by and large that I think much more closely echo uh, a Telluride audience, let's say, than the rest of the communities around these festivals would. I don't know about the one near you, Katie. Maybe that's a little bit more like for the people. But, you know, Middleburg is an expensive proposition. Savannah might not be because that is a city where people live. But, you know, the, the, these festivals are are great. And I, I, I'm happy that these smaller regional festivals exist. But the demographically speaking, I don't know how they don't differ that much, I guess, what I'm saying from audiences that have seen these films already. Yeah. Yeah, I think around here you get the power of uh, two universities, uh, the University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill and Duke. Uh, kind of, there's a lot of authors based here. There's writers, professors. There's a you know a handful of Academy members, uh, which is I think how a lot of these films wind up in these places. You know, they're in the places where they might be going at the, on their weekend homes if you're in Mill Valley or Middleburg, or just kind of catching the attention of people where they are. Um, it's kind of an interesting like whistle stop tour approach to an Oscar campaign, which is not necessarily what you would expect for you know Netflix. It has most of their contenders are at one of these festivals and they'll be available in people's houses very soon, but they really want to like focus in on these locations and get that kind of personal touch. Yeah, I just feel like momentum is so valuable during the awards race, you know, and and the more of these festivals they can hit and have their talent posing, and it just it just builds buzz in a way that, you know, is invaluable to any of any of these films. So and Netflix especially, I think, is really known for just like hitting every festival um, they can with their films. But it it's true. Most of the contenders are hitting at least like four out of five of these. So, um, yeah, I just think you can't um, ever underestimate the power of, you know, buzz and momentum when it comes to awards films. And depending on what talent you're bringing to each one, it's a good way for them to kind of get their their campaigning you know, mm-hmm. legs under them, you know, like it's like a smaller audience in Savannah. Um, you know, I've done some Q and A's there over the years and, um, it's an engaged audience, but you know, maybe it's good prep for actor X to do that before they go, you know, into the LA campaigning circuit later yeah. in the year. And the audiences are very receptive. It does add this air of, it kind of codifies all of these movies as the awards movies of the year, you know? Um, yes. And and I think that, you know, and, and I'm so heartened to see, for example, Flea, a documentary, animated documentary that we've talked about on this podcast at, you know, at Middleburg, New York Film Festival, Hamptons, uh, 919 and Savannah. That's terrific. I was talking with someone at this Come On, Come On event last night, uh, Matt Neglia, uh, who does um, award stuff. He was saying that he thinks it has a chance of getting in best picture in addition to animated international feature and documentary. And it's really getting a push and it's really exciting to see. I mean, that's neon, which is, has a a lot of films in contention this year, really throwing a lot of weight behind it because I think these films that the distributors have to pay to be at these festivals. So I think that um, this is, this is not just a sort of exposure question. It's also a financial one. And clearly, um, they've deemed it worth it. Well, and they certainly have to pay to get the talent there, which uh, yeah. is definitely not cheap as you uh, you watch how, how Maggie Gyllenhaal is just going to be absolutely everywhere for a few months. I mean, in years past, I have you know gone to Toronto and seen a good number of the titles that would show up here at Film Fest 919, and but I would still learn a lot from just being there. Like the Roma year, Netflix brought the two actresses from Roma to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, for this screening, and you had already premiered at Toronto. It was already widely tipped, but they kind of did that like pressing the flesh, like it is worth it to show up in person thing, which you know paid off down the line because they both got nominations. 
And then in 2020, uh, Parasite won the Audience Award here at Film Fest 919. It had come in third at TIFF. It uh, came in after Jojo Rabbit. Um, but it winning the Audience Award here, and, you know, for an audience that, like we were saying, is, like, intelligent and ready for these movies. But, you know, I think the whole question with Parasite the whole season was, like, but will audiences embrace it? And that was when I was like, oh, yeah, this movie is going all the way. Uh, and I'm sure for the studios, it's the same thing, where it's not exactly, like, market research with the middle of the country, but it is learning, like, what audiences respond to, what, you know, which stars get the best reception? Like, what what are people into? How can you focus your campaign around that? Like, this is basically a month of them experimenting with that and figuring out what works. Well, off of this list of uh, films that will be at festivals everywhere um, is Parallel Mothers, the Pedro Almodovar movie that uh, was at Venice. Is that Venice? It's at New York Film Festival right now. It will also be at Hamptons, Mill Valley, and Savannah. And they just announced, Spain announced today that they will not be submitting it as their submission for the uh, international feature film. They instead are going with Fernando Leon de Aranoa's Mondays in the Sun, which is a movie I don't know anything about and could be fantastic and better than Parallel Mothers, which I also haven't seen. Um, But what I think is the fascinating thing is that uh, one of his previous films was submitted by Spain instead of Talk to Her um, back in 2002, and then Talk to Her got a Best Director and Best Screenplay nomination, uh, even though it wasn't nominated in Best International Feature. So here's the question. Will history repeat itself? Is this how Pedro Almodovar kind of uh, uses that same energy that like powered Argo to a Best Picture nomination. Like you get snubbed in one place and you just go win everything else. Do you guys see that happening here? Mm, um, maybe. I, <laughs> why not? I mean, I think there is some interesting, and this is not, I'm sure, done on purpose. But you know, there is there has been a conversation about if a film is nominated for international feature, then it kind of gets stuck there and, and doesn't get nominations for anything else. And I do mm-hmm. think that this film has a chance to be nominated in other categories. So maybe this will be sort of a silver lining and it'll, yeah, get those nominations or in acting or screenplay or picture, or, you know, where it maybe would have been kind of um, sequestered to just the international features category before. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Everything's different after Parasite, I feel like. So yeah. um, it's it's a little harder to predict. And I do think these, uh, you know, foreign language films do have um, – more opportunity than they did before. Um, I just wanted to add, Katie, uh, you said Mondays in the Sun. That is one of the director's films, but the, the one that's been chosen for this year is The Good Boss. Oh, excuse me. That is uh, and that's my mistake. It stars Javier Bardem. So Bardem oh, and Cruz, <laughs> a couple still, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, squaring yeah. off <laughs> at the Oscars. And then Bardem's movie goes into the submission. I don't know. It just sort of, it's funny to think the Spanish film industry is big and diverse and whatever, but like <laughs> here you have this one couple, like <laughs> as the stars of these two movies that are duking it out. Um, it's sort of interesting. This is really kind of the year of the real life couples, like with Kirsten Dust and Jesse Plemons and Power of the Dog. And then Peter Sarsgaard is in The Lost Daughter that Maggie Gyllenhaal directed. Uh, this is, this is the trend piece that one of you guys needs to write for us. So yeah, the Cyrano, Peter Dinklage, the Cyrano team. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Peter Dinklage, that Cyrano, a a movie that's going to a bunch of film festivals and Peter Dinklage, someone who's never been nominated before who might get in for the first time this year. So, so many themes wrapped up into one. Well, now for a hard pivot to musicals, believe it or not, because a there's one little bit of news that I just wanted to to say out loud and flag for you guys, which is that the Silver Linings Playbook is being developed as a musical. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but this Oscar-winning, very successful film, it ends with a big dance competition. Is this something that everyone else tends to forget? Because I definitely had not thought about it until I saw that it was going to become a musical. And I was like, oh, I guess that works. 
Yeah, that's I like vaguely remember the costumes, <laughs> but, <laughs> but only because you brought it up. But yes, I, 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 it's funny that movie it got an, an acting nomination in every category, right? It won yes. for Lawrence, best picture, best director, right? Screenplay. I don't remember anything about that movie. Crabby Snacks is that something from Crabby that movie Snacks that and Homemaids? <laughs> yep, yeah. she 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 says that twice for some reason. I don't know why she keeps talking about Crabby Snacks. I mean, let's just okay. Picture it. You're sitting, let's say, in the Walter Care Theater. You've got your playbill. You're reading it. You're looking through the list of songs, and then toward the end of Act One, you see. Crabby Snacks and Homemaids. <laughs> That's the song you're looking forward to, I think. If, if they're not serving those in the concession stand, they're making a real mistake. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I, I love to have the smell of crab fill the air as I <laughs> go to a Broadway show. I mean, it seems, I guess it could work, right? Like, and what IP hasn't been considered for a musical at this point, I guess, is the real question. You know, the Back to the Future musical is kicking around in the UK and could show up any minute. Um, you know, the Mean Girls musical, the list goes on forever. So, like, why not Silver Linings Playbook? I guess I just wonder, like, is, how valuable that IP really is that this is what they're pushing for. Yeah, that's an odd, that's an odd that's an odd one to sort of. I guess I, I guess the thinking is well, there's already dancing in it, so we'll just make it that <laughs> dancing and football, the two things that you want to see on Broadway together at the same time. Right. Well, it's something for the for the gays and the straights. <laughs> <laughs> um, Richard, if you're not into a musical based on a Best Actress Oscar winning film, how about one based on uh, one of the most tragic public figures of the late 20th century? Uh, Richard, you watched the Diana musical, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> uh, it's on Netflix. They recorded it during COVID without an audience, right? Yes, there is no audience, which adds to the surreality of the whole thing. Because you're just like, the songs end and there's just no applause. <laughs> and you're like, okay, <laughs> um, maybe that's actually how it's like <laughs> when there is an audience. I don't know. Um, because it's really bad. Um, I that was I was supposed to see it on stage uh, right before everything shut down for COVID. Um yeah, it was going to open that didn't. spring along with like six and all the other big, like what was supposed to be the big, big musicals of the season and it just had to shut down. Right. It's an interesting strategy to then kind of sell these broadcast rights or whatever to Netflix and have them film something and then release that before the show has opened on Broadway, you know, or, or, or yeah. started performances again. That feels yeah. very like who's going to buy the cow, you know, mm -hmm. uh, if you're giving away mm -hmm. the Diana for free. Um <laughs> You know, what, regardless of how the trajectory of the show went, whether it had opened in last, you know, March of 2020 or is opening now and the Netflix thing came later, I think at root the problem is that, like, the show is just extraordinarily strange in that it it feels so dated. It's like they, like, opened a tomb and there was this lost Andrew Lloyd Webber musical from 35 <laughs> years ago that they, that they just decided <laughs> to put up as is. Um, you know, like, the the music is weird. The lyrics are wild like i mean i i tweeted about one where when diana is visiting some patients uh ace patients um and one of them sings to her i may be unwell but i'm handsome as hell and you're just like what is happening no. i don't know <laughs> who approved any of this it's and it's also just like this is on netflix that also has a show called the crown which we've seen that like has detailed this in much more robust uh, interesting kind of more gossipy kind of palace intrigue fashion. And Diana, the musical is just this very, like it tries to act like it's telling you stuff you didn't know. And it's like, no, we know all of this. Um, <laughs> I guess it's kind of exciting to see James Hewitt strut onto stage at the top of act two shirtless, riding something and singing about how he's James Hewitt. That's kind of funny, 
But mm-hmm. for the most part, I just don't understand why this show exists, to be honest. Well, the question is, like, can you make something funny about what we is very vividly in our minds from The Crown about this really sad situation with these two people kind of forced to marry each other? There's not a lot of love there. She's tormented. She's got an eating disorder. Her her life obviously ends really tragically. Like, does a song and dance show about that subject matter? Like, you know, Henry VIII is also a sad story and so six is out there. So I guess nothing is really off limits. But it feels like that, you know, I watched a little bit of the Diana musical. I didn't finish it. But that that tonal dissonance feels really um, hard to get around. Is this like going to be a hate watch situation? I think it already is. Oh, it is. I think so. There's like lists circulating. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) There there are lists circulating of like the worst lyrics from the Diana the Musical. Mm -hmm. I mean, my one tweet about it, I think, has like 2,000 likes or something. Like people are definitely like into how wild and strange the show is. Um, But I think the thing is, I had a a friend over on Sunday night to watch it and he's a Brit and... um, not a royalist, um, but we were both very curious to see the show. We were supposed to see it on Broadway, uh, you know, last uh, in 2020. And after kind of guffawing at some of the the dumb lyrics, you know, we we paused it. One of us had to go to the bathroom or something, and we were like, "Wait, there's an hour and 20 minutes left." Like we thought we'd <laughs> watch. We thought we were almost done, and so it just gets kind of boring, uh, yeah. which is a problem that I would maybe be alleviated some on stage because you're just you're like watching you know there's it's always nice to watch actors sing and perform you know and the, the, they're all talented like the performances are are fine um they certainly sound good uh in terms of the singing um but there's just it, it's a very like been there done that seen that like i think the it ends rather nicely there's a, a pretty good like final stage picture that um really works well or at least diana's final moment on stage but that, you know, that's that's not very much to hang the rest of the show on. Um, yeah. So I think it will, Rebecca, become something of a hate watch. But I, I my guess is that people will kind of laugh for 30 minutes and then be like, OK, no, no, let's watch actually watch something else, because this is not really um, watch Squid Game, which uh, I have not right. watched, but seems like a very weird double feature with Diana the musical. Yeah. I love that in this episode, you've vaguely hinted at the ending of both Diana and Spencer. <laughs> what a weird year. <laughs> well, not a lot of people know how Princess Diana's life ends, so we need to just keep it, keep the secrets. Um, I think it I, is a, a big revelation that Kristen Stewart can sing as well as she does, you know. <laughs> I did want to circle back to Spencer at the end and maybe um, make this more uh, topical for our Oscar purposes. Is like, I wonder about Diana fatigue happening because you've got the recent season of The Crown, Emma Corrin was on the awards campaign circuit for seemingly forever um and then you've got the diana musical you've got spencer coming then the next season of the crown is coming in the spring and we've all seen these set photos of elizabeth debicki does spencer suffer from that or do you think it emerges being like well okay these are all the others but like this is the definitive diana thing that you want to shower with awards it's just so different like it's not you know a traditional biopic that i feel like once people realize that and, you know, when it's just about three days in her life, I think, and it's so like full of fantasy elements that I, it just it's just I can't you it's so different than The Crown that I feel like um, that's OK to have both. And mm-hmm. I don't know. And, you know, you you Vanity Fair knows the, the sort of obsession <laughs> with the royals more than anyone. So what are you trying to say, know, Rebecca? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there is fatigue for any version of that story. And I think the thing about Spencer is that as much as it's about these three days in Diana's life uh, or an imagination of what that might have been, um, it's also about 
kind of meta textually our interest in that story and our interest mm-hmm. in Kristen Stewart. You know, um, it's about the sort of prison of fame or whatever, you know, and, and I think, so I think there's enough in there that like is speaking to something bigger than just the Diana story, um, that, that does differentiate it from the crown, which is so studiously like just about the Royals, you know? Yeah. I will say the crown that for what I watched the Diana musical, the crown really spoiled me for uh, hair, for wigs and costumes and that the wigs and the Diana musical are just not quite right to what her real hair looked like and it, it drove me crazy because... and they recreate some of her like iconic outfits and yeah. but, like they just don't look good you know and you're just like this is just like <laughs> just don't open the show on broadway just well usually you're it. usually sitting 200 feet away right so you get yeah. a, a little bit more uh grace there well exactly and they haven't really tweaked for the up you know the up closeness of the camera at all yeah uh, well, I get to see Spencer at Film Fest 919 in a couple of weeks to end on one more shameless plug for my local film festival that I love and tickets go on sale soon. Um, and then I'll be the final judge of which Diana is right for you, which I guess if you're <laughs> like me, the answer is all of them, because, of course, I'm going to see all of this. So how does that work? So when Film Fest 919 ends, you just you pick up a red phone that connects directly to the Academy and you just tell them what what's going to work. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And somehow, like, I think Emma Corrin might get nominated for an Oscar. I don't know. <laughs> okay. uh, they're well, going to bend hey. the rules. <laughs> yeah. They'll find a way. Um, back on the film festival circuit, uh, there's one more movie we did want to talk about that, again, I haven't seen yet, but I want to hear you guys tell me all about, um, which is The Rescue, um, which is from the filmmakers behind Free Solo, who have kind of made their name for really gripping documentaries about crazy things that happen out in nature. And The Rescue seems uh, really in line with that. It's been building really good buzz since um, since Tell You Right, and it is, it is out soon. So can you guys tell me about it? Yes. <laughs> um, it, so it premiered at Telluride. It, you know, is about the uh, Thai cave rescue that was in the news in 2018. And um, what I think is amazing is, you know, with Free Solo, Chai Rossarelli and Jimmy Chin filmed all of that footage themselves. But here they had to deal with, um, you know, footage that they weren't in control of that was filmed during the time. And then they added uh, interviews and some re- uh, recreations of some of the underwater scenes. And they they created this documentary that really um, puts you back in the rescue. And they made it um, easy to watch because I think there are a lot of like complicated strategic explanations but you I feel like you really feel the emotions of these divers who you know rescued these kids and uh, to me it was just a really uh, in-depth documentary about this amazing story Uh, so I really really enjoyed it. And it's such an interesting pivot from Free Solo which as the title would suggest is about this kind of loner guy doing this you know dangerous wild thing by himself and that's kind of how it's by that's by design you know whereas the rescue is very much about hundreds of if not thousands of people coming together to do something incredible and yes Mm -hmm. when these british divers are in these caves like these underwater caves they are alone but like they're searching for people and there have other people kind of like helping them on the other side. And, and so it's, it's a, it's a much bigger in scope kind of thing. And, but I think that uh, Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli, um, they find a way to personalize it and to, to make it almost as immediately gripping as free solo is. Um, I think that they, the movie does lose a little when you know that the diving scenes are recreations and not, you know, like free solo where it's actually being filmed live, but um, yeah, it's an incredible story and really moving in the way that all of these, the world was sort of 
watching this thing. And, you know, these are rural Thai kids who would probably not have had that kind of attention on them. And, and it's just, it's a really like, I'm glad they don't, they don't interview the kids, which I think is probably good. Um, but it's, yeah, it's moving. I, I cried and, um, I, I think it will be a crowd pleaser, uh, for this whole fall. I read in an interview, they couldn't interview the kids because Netflix has a limited series coming and, and bought their life. Right. So it's like, uh, yeah, they couldn't do it. And, you know, I, I'm sure they're getting a nice deal with their life rights from Netflix. But um, I feel like the documentary definitely doesn't lose anything not having that. We're really in quite a period for dueling documentaries about the same subject. Um, and I was thinking about how for when this story first happened, because it was everyone in the world was talking about it. They kept talking about doing dramatic, you know, a narrative film about all of this. And hearing you guys talk about the documentary, it feels just so obvious that using reality to make a documentary about it is so much more the way to go to, to tell the story. Yeah, I think there is still a Ron Howard like dramatic film coming. So speaking of fatigue, this might there might be like three <laughs> different projects on this on this rescue. I think the movie also does, I mean, if there's someone in your life who is thinking about taking up underwater cave diving, um, just show them this movie and they might think, <laughs> uh, think otherwise, you know, it looks miserable and like awful and like scary on so many different levels that, uh, oh, I mean, these guys are incredible what they do. And then they also, I think the film does a good job of highlighting the work that the, the Thai Navy SEALs did as well. And one of whom mm. um, died during trying to, you know, during the rescue. And they, they, I think they, they pay appropriate, uh, you know, homage to that. And, um, but yeah, this is, it's, ugh, it's, if you're claustrophobic, it's, it's a hard watch, but it's worth it. Um, well, the rescue is at uh, Middleburg, Hamptons, Mill Valley, and Savannah Film Festivals, but it's also out in theaters uh, October 15th, so it's coming around the corner. Um, and then, Richard, there's one more new release that um, you wanted to talk about that is not first cow, when it's not cow, when it's not pig, it's lamb. Mm-hmm. The animal year continues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell me about lamb. Uh, that is an, it's an A24 movie, Icelandic, uh, Numi Rapace is in it speaking, I believe her native Icelandic. And, uh, it was at Cannes and I, I had no idea what it was about. And it's rare that you can have that experience because usually something spoil a trailer, or, you know, a tweet, whatever. Um, but I went in totally and I wish that people could, but I, the trailer kind of gives away sort of what the movie's about. It's a horror movie about uh, two, you know, farmers in Iceland and, uh, have a sort of tragic past in terms of trying to have children and then something a creature of some sort comes into their life and uh strange things happen and then it sort of takes a weird veer into comedy and then right back to horror it, it yeah it's a it's a funny little movie I, but a24 is really doing a lot with it like they're doing lots of screenings i think that there is certainly a hope that it will for all of its kind of buzzy like oh you have to see it to believe it kind of stuff um that there'll be a sort of like specialty box office slow surge for it, which, I mean, maybe there will be. I, I think that, you know, this this season currently is doesn't have a lot of other films even remotely like it. So maybe it'll stand out in that way. Well, A24 has really specialized in that kind of thing, right? You know, The Lighthouse, Midsommar, uh, going back to The Witch, like the movie Hereditary. And, and I think those have all like had varying levels of award success. Like it's been kind of an uphill battle, but like that's a really good way to build buzz. Just be like, this is some really fancy movie that is also insane. So you got to see it to, to know what we're talking about. Yeah, prestige horror, but not afraid to be kind of campy and, and weird. And, you know, and I will tell you, I mean, when you first see the thing that you're that is the shock, it's really like you're like, oh, good <laughs> lord, like yeah, yeah. So it's um, it, it it knows that it's funny, 
I think, which is important. It's not trying to be so gravely serious. Is it a musical number about Princess Diana? <laughs> so no. it's Jackie Weaver singing about crabby snacks, <laughs> but she's got goat legs or lamb legs. What, what is a lamb? Sheep. Sheep legs. We need to set up a Richard spoiler corner in every episode. <laughs> yeah. You're just throwing them out wild and loose. That does it for this week's episode. You can find us at Vanity Fair, uh, writing about all kinds of things that we talked about and following the the many movies that are all over festivals this month. Um, You can follow us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. At Rylaws. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. You can also sign up to text with us at subtext, join subtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-401-9739. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best reason to listen to next week's episode, even if you didn't like this one, goes to Rebecca Ford. There is still a Ron Howard, like, dramatic film coming. 